You're listening to the Quince podcast. Sixteen December brings back memories of the heinous Nirbhaya gang rape case of 2012 that shook the very core of the nation and the seven long years that it took to bring justice. It was only nine months back earlier in 20 March 2020 that this case finally got closure with all four convicts being hanged to death. From Prime Minister Narendra Modi to film stars to other prominent personalities had tweeted saying that justice has prevailed. Yet, as we think about Nirbhaya's justice, a lot of other factors also come to mind. Why is it that crimes against women have only risen further by 7.3% in just the last one year? Despite death penalties being awarded in some cases, why is it that India is not being able to prevent violence against women? With the Maharashtra State Cabinet recently approving a draft for the Shakti Bill on 9th December to protect children against sexual violence, it's raising a lot of questions on whether the governments are being short-sighted with rape laws. Among other things, while on the one hand the bill proposes death penalty for rape, gang rape and penetrative sexual assault against children and women, on the other hand it also seeks to add a quote-unquote explanation on quote-unquote implied consent suggesting that when adults are involved and circumstances point to quote unquote consent or implied consent a presumption of consent will be made by lawyers women's rights activists and children's rights activists are outraged and are viewing this bill as a regressive step an old but persistent argument against death penalty for rape is also back in focus are such draconian laws more reactionary in nature rather than creating a process to help survivors and victims is india's focus on punishment rather than prevention of rape and sexual crimes doing more harm than good in this podcast you'll hear from advocate veena gora and lawyer and child rights activist maruk edenwala who are both part of lawyer activist groups who've written to chief minister uddhav thakre seeking a hold on the bill until there's a larger consultation with those working on these issues You're tuned in to the Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you, and I'm your host, Shalpuri. On 14 December, Maharashtra Home Minister Anil Deshmukh tabled the Shakti Criminal Law Maharashtra Amendment Act, modelled on Andhra Pradesh's Disha Act, that was approved following the Telangana Vets rape in 2018. Along with that, Mr. Deshmukh also tabled the Special Court in Missionary for implementation of Maharashtra Shakti Criminal Law. According to a report on Times of India, the draft was prepared after 10 months of research and groundwork that also included Mr. Deshmukh paying a visit to Andhra Pradesh to study the Disha Act. But soon after receiving criticisms from various groups, the Maharashtra Legislative Assembly sent the bills to a joint select committee for a review. And while the bills will now be introduced in the budget session next, let's take a look at what all they propose and why they faced opposition. What the first bill does is as we've said propose death penalty in cases of rape, gang rape, aggravated sexual assault of minors and cases of acid attack where grievous injury is caused. It also has provisions of steep fines up to rupees 10 lakhs on those found guilty. Then there's life imprisonment for not less than 10 years which may extend to the remainder of natural life or with death in cases characterized as quote unquote heinous. It also has provisions for the amendment of existing sections of the IPC or the CRPC 
and the Pokso or Protection of Children from Sexual Offences Act for stricter punishments. Now, some of the primary features of the second bill, which is the Special Court and Machinery for Implementation of the Maharashtra Shakti Criminal Law, are that it seeks to establish special courts, a minimum of one in each district for trials. It also wants to bring the investigation period down from two months to 15 days. Other than that, the bills also want to bring in medical or psychiatric support for survivors. So now, if the bills want to help women and children ensure quick justice and provide for severe punishment for perpetrators, why are women and child rights activists finding it regressive? Where do they go wrong? It's not one or two things. What is especially facing censure is the issue of defining consent. What counts as consent and what doesn't is something that this entire discourse has been trying to determine, be it in legal terms or be it in the Me Too movement or in cases of marital rape or even workplace harassment. And at least a few dozen of groups and women's rights activists, lawyers, child's rights activists and academics have written to Chief Minister Uddhav Thakre saying that the first bill will quote-unquote negate the very definition of rape. Advocate Veena Gora talks about how presumption of consent defeats the very purpose of justice. Now, one of our main concerns is the uh, introduction of what is called implied consent. Now, what is the uh, definition of rape? Rape is uh, sexual uh, behavior conduct against the, you know, penovaginal object, uh, uh, finger, etc. Penetration against the consent of the woman. So therefore, what does the uh, prosecution have to prove? They have to prove that there was a, 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 a penetration as well as that they have to prove that there was it was against the consent of the woman. So therefore, the burden is already anyway on the prosecution. Then the court will decide based on evidence whether consent it was a consensual act or not. Now, what the uh, uh, what the 2013 amendments had done, subsequent to the Nirbhaya judgment as well as the Verma Committee uh, report, is that they had explained what is the concept of consent. Consent means unequivocal consent from the woman by word or gesture. Now, what has happened is that what the Maharashtra government intends to do is add another explanation, which is implied consent. So they say that when if all if there uh, if there is an allegation of rape between two adults, okay, and uh, the circumstances being such that an a consent can be implied, then the court will presume that there is consent. So which means that there is a presumption of consent in certain cases. Now, what, uh, what this does, for example, if there is a girl who's gone out on a Tinder date, okay, so she's gone on a Tinder date, she's met somebody, she meets him a couple of times, they may make out a little bit somewhere, you know, and then he forces himself on her. And then if she says that he has uh, raped me because it is against her consent. She may have given consent to him kissing her, but not necessarily for a penetrative sexual act. Then, there, then there's a possibility that the court will say that the circumstances are such because she's gone out with him, she's met him a few times, that the consent is implied. Uh, you know, then there is a double burden on her to prove that no, it was against my consent. So therefore, it becomes near impossible. So, for example, if an, another woman was living was living with uh, uh, somebody and then they break up, you're in an affair, you break up. And then after breaking up, the uh, the man uh, has, uh, you know, uh, um, 
non-consensual sex with that woman, then again, this such a section will go against uh, uh, the woman. Now, what happens is that even in adult women, most rapes happen uh, not by other than stranger uh, uh, rape. This will actually exclude all other kinds of rape. And what we've seen statistically is that uh, often women are raped by people known to them. You know, so therefore that is the problem. And that's why we're saying that this will negate the entire definition of rape. And other than stranger rape, you can't bring in anything else. Another big criticism is that the bills seek to punish the filing of quote-unquote false complaints or providing quote-unquote false information regarding sexual offences against women solely with the intention to humiliate, extort, threaten or defame the accused. And this, Ms. Gora says, reflects the patriarchal perspective of rape. Every law is abused. Okay, but however, in every law you don't have, in any special legislation, you don't have this added uh, uh, clause of false complaints. Okay, now what happens somewhere is that this is the patriarchal construction of women as manipulative, as liars, and this feeds into that. Now, where else do you find this other, uh, in another um, uh, legislation about false complaints is the sexual harassment at workplace. Because there is so much uh, hype about women misusing the law that the law feels that they need to bring in this concept of a false complaint into it itself, while all other laws are also being um, uh, misused. Now, the thing is, uh, uh, the thing is this, that if you put a, comp uh, if you put such a clause, women again will be hesitant to file complaints of, uh, of uh, uh, rape, etc. It's first of all, not easy. Society does not make it easy for women to file complaints of uh, 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 rape, of sexual assault. We still live in a society where, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we still, uh, we, uh, you, people want to marry virgins. If there is a concept, I mean, if there is an allegation on me, I mean, you know, uh, it is seen like as if a so, it's a social death of a woman. So in cases like that, I mean, when already it's very difficult for women, adding this, it's, it's another threat saying that, if you don't manage to prove uh, uh, the complaint, then you will. Uh, there will be prosecution against you. And now, how do you decide what is a false complaint? Because a lot of times cases don't get proved because the investigation is shoddy, the trial is not conducted very well, or there is basic bias within the uh, system. So just because a case is not proved doesn't make it a false case. So therefore, if a case is uh, uh, not proved, then there's a possibility that a complaint of uh, a false case can be filed against uh, the woman. And that is a difficult. But now coming to the aspect of stringent punishments, activists and lawyers are also concerned about how death penalty will not help survivors of assault. Instead, it might actually endanger them. Time and again, as rape cases get reported, the issue of death penalty turns into a debate between those advocating for retributive justice and those who advocate for restorative justice. In the Nirbhaya case, for instance, that went on for seven years, right till the day of capital punishment, this has been an ongoing debate. But when speaking on capital punishment for rape, the question is, do stricter punishments deter rape? Have death penalties been able to prevent rapes and other sexual violence? Ms. Gora Vazin. I, uh, I sincerely doubt it because there are death penalties even for certain offences now, but that doesn't mean that they have stopped. Now, the thing is this, that what happens is that whenever we speak of uh, safety of women and security of women, everyone wants to, the, every government wants to do its bit 
So then the pitch goes very high and the higher the pitch goes, they will say that, okay, then we will, uh, you know, have death penalty with a, uh, with a belief somewhere. That's also a very patriarchal uh, notion. So what studies have shown, there are several studies which have shown that severity of punishment is hardly a deterrent. What is deterrent is consistency of punishment. For example, if I believe that if I commit an offense, I will be investigated, there will be a fair trial and I will be convicted. Now, 10 years is not less. Life sentence is not less. I mean, you know, for it to be a deterrent. But what happens now is that there is no consistency. There is no certainty that, you know, if something happens, there will be justice at the end of it. So therefore, there, the law is not taken very seriously. And it won't be taken seriously only by having death penalty. Like I told you, this is all connected in the sense of that, like I told you that most rapes are, are, uh, are um, you know, uh, done by people that are known to the woman. So therefore, now if she feels that, uh, you know, this person may face death penalty, especially in cases like POXO, where children are uh, 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 raped. So then what happens is that it's normally your, you know, some very close family member. So when, when the result is uh, you feel that, okay, that person may face death, then not only the family will dissuade, dissuade the woman from filing a complaint, but she herself may not want to uh, uh, file a complaint. The other point is that it endangers the life of the woman, the victim herself, because what happens and the, then the person, the perpetrator will say that the accused will say, okay, then, you know, I might as well kill her. You know, so that I won't leave the only witness uh, who can actually uh, prove this uh, case. So to a certain extent, it also endangers uh, uh, women's lives. So studies have shown that death penalty doesn't help. What we need is certainty and consistency in, uh, in investigation, trial and uh, judgments. That is what will make a difference. And that is something that politicians have to understand and not the rhetoric of death penalty. Maruk Edenwala, who's a lawyer and child rights activist, believes that instead of making a more enabling environment for women and children, legislators pick the easy way out by tightening punishments and try to convince people that the job is done. The first thing which I would like to say is that legislature and lawmakers keep believing that making the punishment stricter is going to prevent or stop the offence. So it's a very easy way of them not taking other measures for protecting children and women, for making a more enabling environment for them and making us believe and making society believe that we've increased the punishment. What more can we do? Now, this whole problem is going to be solved. And what is more worrying is that bringing in death penalty. It wasn't as if the punishment was not severe. It already extended up to life imprisonment. So wherever cases the court believed the person should get the maximum punishment, they were always able to impose life imprisonment if they wanted to. So why this whole thing of death penalty? I mean, why this bloodthirst? Why is there this thought in the legislature's mind that people will only be appeased if you hang a person? And... And now there will be no, see, we always believe that this whole thing of increasing punishment is trying to tell people that we are doing something. And we as child rights activists believe that there's much more you could do. So please, we don't want this blanket or, you know, hogwash to 
try and say ki no we are doing all we could and what is more worrisome is you have this whole justice varma committee sitting they gave lots of other than law they gave lots of other options protective measures you don't follow any of that and they said no death penalty and you keep concentrating on that so what's the purpose of holding these committees if you are just not going to adhere to their recommendations so that is the most upsetting thing about death penalty i mean listen and you know for children justice just doesn't mean punishment justice means a safe environment and and with regards to children if you just look at crime in india it very clearly states that the majority of the accused are persons known to the child including family members so you can imagine the pressure upon the child when the child goes to court number of children who are forced to turn hostile because the pressure that comes from their family members and now when a person is going to be awarded death penalty and there is possibility of that can you imagine the amount of pressure the child is going to undergo i mean concentrate on the things we want you to concentrate on what child rights activists women's group they've been working for so many years they know what the concentration should be upon what the focus should be upon you're just taking the easy way out forget death penalty you're not even getting a conviction miss edenwala also points out that the time period suggested for a fast track trial and investigation may also do more harm than good to minors have you done a study of the poxo courts to see how long it takes for a sexual offence against a child's trial to be completed that's what's upsetting me before doing such studies you're talking about amending the law the poxo act already has a provision which says as far as possible the trial should be completed within one year there is another provision which says the child's testimony should be taken within one month so that will obviously be after the charge sheet is filed correct i mean because while the investigation is going on you're not going to start the trial and what i'm telling you mostly the trials are not getting completed within a period of one year child's evidence is not being recorded within a period of one month so why don't you streamline that why don't you streamline and ensure that the existing provisions are being adhered to before as you said becoming more lofty so let us first at least get the present system into place and then let us see let us get that working should you, shouldn't the government be concentrating on having more courts shouldn't the government be concentrating on having a more specialized cadre cadre isn't that what your focus should be do you really you know like today like you have cases where 6 months later the chemical analysis report doesn't come 6 months later the such reports are not coming and see my thing is that in a quest for speedy justice justice cannot be denied and while we are talking about the victim or the survivor we also have to keep the accused in mind 
the accused also has a right to a fair trial. Huh? Okay, let's forget the accused. But even with regards to a child, if the reports haven't come in, how are you going to talk about even getting justice to the child? And you know the defense is going to take advantage of all these loopholes. I mean, what tomorrow if the defense says that the trial is supposed to be completed within 15 days and it's not completed within one year? What are we going to do? Do we have the strength to say then he's going to be acquitted? So I'm saying, all oh, this is hogwash. What is the purpose of laying down any timelines when if it's not followed, there's going to be no implication? But now that the government has bowed down to criticism and sent the bills to a review committee, will the next draft address all these loopholes? That'll be left to see. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to the Big Story playlist for episodic updates. We'll have on Apple, Google Podcast, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quinn website and check out the podcast section. For any feedback, shoot an email to podcasts at thequinn.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quinn's website and check out our other podcasts. 